0: Welcome to What Catholics Believe. We have a different format tonight. it will be a flying solo. Our Mr. Thomas Nagley is not with us tonight because of the birth of his sixth child, a little girl named Noelle. So we welcome Noelle into the world and uh, trust that uh, her love for God will make it a better place. So uh, I ask you to please uh, pray for the blessing of that family, the Nagley family. Also, Please pray for the repose of the soul of Rita Orzachowski. Rita died just uh, yesterday morning. And also Michael George passed away in New York. Very fine gentlemen. Pray for those who are ill. Please keep in your prayers Marguerite Davenport and Raymond Zsicki and John Nyan. And a goodly number of other dear souls who are suffering with a heavy cross of illness in this world. Please remember them all. I thank you for that. Now because of the uh, different format here with, uh, without uh, Tom here to propose questions, I have received a number of uh, copies of the emails that he would have covered, so I'll just read them for you and go over them. Uh, starting with this uh, email that I received. Asking about uh, a certain conflict between Father Sanborn and Father Dolan over the uh, Father Gerard de Laurier thesis. And I don't know how many of you are familiar with the thesis uh, called the Th- uh, Thesis of Caciquiacum. It was developed by uh, one of the, well, a Dominican priest who became one of the Turk bishops, actually, uh, Father Gerard de Laurier. And uh, The uh, thesis is an attempt to explain how uh, you could have a man like Francis, for example, who would be uh, sitting on the throne of Peter, or at least living in the Vatican, and considered by Catholics at large, that is, uh, throughout the world, um, as a true pope, Whereas others, others question it. And, and actually, he brings that doubt upon himself by his own, not only uh, irreverence, but just downright blasphemy, and his uh, heretical statements also, and sacrilegious actions. Uh, how can this be? The thesis of Kasichiachkum, actually developed years and years ago by Father Grad Laurier, proposed that you can divide the papacy uh, in a sense into uh, those who are materially the Pope and those who are formally the Pope, that there is an aspect of the papacy which allows one to be materially the Pope, but not formally the Pope. Materially in the sense that he occupies the throne physically, uh, but uh, formally insofar as he really has no power, no papal power. Now, of course, this is simply a hypothesis proposed by uh, Father Greta-Laurier, which others have tapped into, and they've tapped into it because they think it somehow can explain how you can have a certain continuation in the papacy by having an actual living warm body on the throne of Peter, who actually still cannot function as the Pope and has no actual authority as Pope because, well, I guess they would argue that he's a heretic or uh, perhaps even a formal heretic. Um, Now, there's a a small minority of people uh, considering themselves traditional Catholic who subscribe to this theory, um, this hypothesis. And it sounds uh, to somewhat to me, it sounds similar to the hypothesis of those who claim that uh, Benedict Sixteenth never actually successfully resigned from the Novus Ordo papacy, and so that Francis is not actually uh, the Pope or the full Pope, a full Novus Ordo Pope. There are those today who, the Actually, are called somewhat facetiously the benevectors, who make a case that Benedict XVI really is still the Pope of the Novus Ordo, not Francis. And they distinguish again; they they take the office of the papacy, and they distinguish between the actual what they would call, I guess, the uh, ministerium almost to the magisterium. Um, and they like to think that you can, again, split the papacy, even between two people. There were those who were proposing that Francis had received part of the papacy, while uh, well as Benedict retained the other part. Now, these ideas, whether you call them the Thesis of Kesikiacum, or this other idea that leads to the uh theory, um, in my opinion these these ideas are are really preposterous and have no foundation whatsoever in Catholic teaching uh They are inventions to try to address an anomaly an anomaly as to how one can have a a pope such as Francis and uh trying to also acknowledge the fact that Francis does not have the authority of a pope but he is in a sense, occupying the place of a pope, um, at least materially, until the time that a real pope can be elected. Um, in fact, I, I think these two theses kind of complement each other in a certain way, in that one says, the k-siki, k-siki, uh, thesis of Casiciacum basically says, well, uh, we're covering the situation right now by saying that uh, Francis does not have the power of the papacy but he only has the uh, materially the, uh, the office or the position you might say, to wear the white cassock, live at that address in the Vatican and so on. And so sort of occupy the papacy uh, until a pope can be truly elected uh, the other theory, the beneficatus theory says, well, uh, Benedict was truly elected but didn't relinquish the papacy really, so he remains the pope. So they're trying to fill the gap for a, a kind of a, a, a vacant papacy uh, from both directions, from the, the France uh, Benedict who came before and from, on the other hand, some other supposed pope who was going to be filled in later. Uh, I think these are both of them really uh, stretching the point to try to accommodate a a, uh, a very tragic anomaly uh, in the church right now. Um, There's no doubt that uh, Francis is the Pope of the Novus Ordo. He is the Pope of the New Order. Um, The question here is how can he be the Pope of the Catholic Church at the same time? He is the pope of modernism, and modernism is the synthesis of all heresies. So how could he be simultaneously the Roman Pontiff, the Victor of Christ on Earth, uh, the head of the Roman Catholic Church here on Earth, visibly? And this is what this is the issue that is being tackled: how this is possible. And the answer is, it really, it really is not possible. But um, whereas the Died in the wool dogmatic sedevacantists uh, claim almost to have dogmatic authority to pronounce sedevacantism uh, as a fact and uh, then you have on the other side their opponents, those who are claiming that without any doubt Francis is truly the Roman pontiff and is truly the vicar of Christ on earth despite what he's doing despite all of his errors against the faith and sacrilegious and blasphemies Nonetheless, he remains the visible head of the Roman Catholic Church on earth. This is what the uh, the anti-Sedificontists are claiming. And they, they both sides claim to be claiming this as though they have some kind of dogmatic authority to anathematize the other and say that the other is not only wrong but that the other pis- uh, pis- position is against the faith and is an anti-Catholic position. Um, I believe that they're both wrong and um, that, in fact, there is a very serious and reasonable and objective doubt about the papacy of Francis and those before him who actually represented the Novus Ordo, the New Order, uh, since Vatican II. But I don't claim to have any dogmatic authority to settle the question so that I can say that somebody who disagrees with me is necessarily non-Catholic or anti-Catholic or out of the Church or excommunicated or anathematized or anything of the kind. Because that requires true magisterial authority, which I don't have. And so we can discuss the issue, and we should discuss the matters because they're very important, but discuss them charitably charitably with Catholic principles. Uh, But we have to realize that while we may come up with Answers that are theological answers, logical answers. Uh, we cannot dogmatize the answers we give because we do not have that authority. All we can do is carry on the traditional Catholic faith, the carry on the belief that the Church has given to us coming down through the catechisms through the centuries, the Catechism of the Council of Trent and the pronouncements of true Roman Catholic pontiffs throughout this time. And uh, we adhere to that faith and we practice that faith in what we would call the traditional Catholic religion with the traditional Latin Mass of the Roman Rite. We follow that, we adhere to that, and the traditional sacraments of the Church. That's what we have to adhere to. So when it comes to this question that is proposed here about the uh, conflict between Father Sanborn and Father Dolan, what we're talking about is... <clears throat> that Father Samuart upso- upholds that thesis of Kasikiacum, this idea of a material pope as opposed to a formal pope uh, in Francis and the other Novus Ordo popes who followed Vatican II. Father Dolan is uh, come out against that. He comes out and rejects that theory. He has his own concept of this. I think uh, Father Dolan even considers this uh, theory to be too lenient or too liberal in even acknowledging that Francis is materially the Pope. I think, I think uh, Father Dolan rejects that very idea. And so there is now a war of words going on between uh, Took Bishop, Father Sanborn, and Took Bishop, Father Dolan, who are, um, uh, well, you might say even attacking each other's position I don't know if I would say attacking each other, I hope not, but attacking each other's position in this. And uh, I believe that they, they're both wrong in uh, some fundamental areas here. Uh, I do pray for them and want them to save their souls. and uh, But I, I hope that they can eventually resolve the issues. One thing that cannot be disputed is, that thesis that Father Sanborn represents, and he mentions their other traditional priests whom he's gotten on board now to uh, stand with him and, and uphold that thesis, they're upholding a thesis. It is a, a hypothesis. That's all it is a hypothesis. It is not a statement of, of the faith, um, it is simply a theory that has been proposed to try to explain. Uh, this current situation with Novus Ordo Supreme Pontiffs and a lack of a pontiff who actually is speaking and acting like a Roman pontiff. Uh, and I think they're grasping for straws, personally. Uh, so I, I hope and pray that it can be resolved, but it can't really be resolved until people are willing to sit down and discuss this in a rational, thoughtful, and Catholic and charitable way Based on Catholic principles, not just argue the point. This is the problem that they're having here now uh, between Father Sanborn and Father Dolan. And I must say, I can't agree with either one of them in this. I think they're arguing about uh, merely, uh, uh, what should I say, smoke and mirrors. In any case, um, going on to the next question here. Um, Father, this may be a controversial question, but I would like a substantive answer from a reliable traditional priest. What is the Catholic Church's position on fascism and other far-right political stances? For, from my understanding, Mit Brenidze Zorge never never condemned Nazism. Mit Brenidze Zorge is the encyclical of Pope Pius XI. Uh, an encyclical that was actually smuggled into Germany under the nose of Hitler and his brown shirts and read from the pulpits of Germany on the same day, the same Sunday. And it was a condemnation. It was indeed a condemnation of National Socialism under Hitler. But he says, Medellinus Orge never condemned Nazism so long as it did not elevate race to an idolatrous level. I ask this because almost all authentic Christian movements for the last 100 or so years have been labeled as fascist and even denounced by many modern prelates. Italian fascists fascists made Catholicism the state religion. Francoists protected Catholics from communists. Leon de Grel and the the, there are some extra words here Rexist party pushed for the social kingship of Christ etc if fascism is truly to be condemned by good Catholics why has every fascist movement been the bulwark against communism and protected Christians in their homeland thank you in advance and you are in my prayers well uh, dear friend Uh, First of all, uh, Nazism was condemned by the church, absolutely condemned by the church, as National Socialism. National Socialism was the, you would call, creed, as it were, of the Nazi Party. In fact, uh, the very name Nazi comes from that uh, idea of National Socialism. And uh, socialism is basically communism taken to its extreme, taken to its logical conclusion. What was the difference between national socialism and Bolshevism of Russia? Well, Bolshevism of Russia was world communism. National socialism of the Nazis had to do with a socialism that was focused on nationalism of the glorification of the state. But Bolshevism, based upon radical Marxism, saw the fall of uh, nations like Domino's uh, into socialist communism. I mean, after all, you had the union of the Soviet Socialist Republics. We know that socialism is merely a phase of a, a society becoming communist. Okay, <clears throat> So, in any case... Um, Although the modern wisdom places National Socialism or Nazism and Fascism to the far right, that spectrum is completely wrong. It is a complete fabrication that that is meant to to confuse people, to deceive them. This idea of Antifa as being the anti-fascists, that is... That is absurd. That they can they position themselves and dub themselves anti-fascists. Uh, there is no one more fascist than the antifas. Uh, why? Because when you get right down to it, I mean, totalitarianism, dictatorial um, totalitarianism, and um, and and basically making the state your god is exactly where fascism and socialism, Nazism, Marxism, all come together. Rather, the spectrum should not be some artificial creation between so-called left and so-called right (coughs) based upon uh, the National Assembly in France during the revolution, the French Revolution, as to who was sitting, the party that was sitting on the right and the party that was sitting on the left. And the distinction between them was that they hated each other and they wanted to annihilate each other. But the fact is that uh, the, the spectrum, the political spectrum, should actually not even go between total government and anarchy. Uh, you know, anarchy being no control, no government control, and complete atomism of the society in which there is, of course, perpetual revolution going on. And on the other hand, total lockdown of the totalitarian dictatorial society, where it is total government, total government control. Even that doesn't work. For Catholics, we have to look at it this way. We have to look at the spectrum as being Christ or Antichrist. We have to look upon the spectrum as the, 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 the zenith or the apotheosis of all true government here on earth. Is that which patterns its laws after the Gospel of Jesus Christ that and that alone can really be good government and from that you have the progressive deterioration all the way over to the total and absolute explicit rejection of Christ. but for us the spectrum has to be based upon the gospel of Christ and the kingship of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now when you when you uh, give this question here you're talking about uh, Franco as though he were actually a fascist. Well, I think uh, that's not true. I don't, I don't consider Franco really a fascist. I do consider him uh, as being caught, you might say, in between the, the national socialists and the world socialists. And he knew that his country, Spain, was being targeted by the Bolsheviks. Yes, after uh, the Bolsheviks had succeeded in taking over Russia, their intent was to spread revolution throughout the entire world, including Spain. They tried. Here in our own United States, after World War I uh, was over, the, the Dovois, our own soldiers, returned to America looking for jobs, and uh, the country had at that time, in a sense, transferred to a wartime economy, entering World War I at, toward the very end, and the, re, the return of our young men by the thousands and thousands looking for jobs placements in our economy was a slow process. The communists thought they could take advantage of that and stirred up over, what was it, 1100 strikes nationwide in, the, in 1920 alone, I understand, as I recall correctly. And that labor strife was stirred up by communist agitators, thinking that if Marx was right and the revolution had taken place in Russia and was successful there, the rest of the nations, the industrialized nations, would follow suit and would lapse into violent revolution and uh, essentially communism. Marx was wrong and they found out very quickly that their plan wasn't going to work because the industrialized nations of the world did not fall into communism despite all of the communist agitation incited by the uh, communist, well, the communist international, the Comintern. And so they had to go back and re-examine their position, the communists did. That's when they decided that Christianity was a problem, that the, the faith of, uh, of the Catholics and Catholic societies, uh, what was left of that, shredded by Protestantism, nonetheless, still had the power to resist the communist propaganda. And that's when the Frankfurt School devised its plan of cultural Marxism. And uh, Antonio Gramsci, also in Italy, came up with the idea of of, of this marching through the institutions in Christian societies to fully de-Christianize them so that they would be ripe for communism. Uh, The fact is, though, that Hitler and Stalin did enter into their pact together to divide Poland between the two of them and they did this at a time when they were propagandizing against each other but they could enter into this pact because they really were bedfellows. they were totalitarians, Uh, they were socialists, Uh, that was the problem actually, they were rivals, they were rivals. For conquest. And um, it wasn't that their ideologies were opposed to each other. Their ideologies were perfectly compatible with each other. The difference being essentially that one would be Bolshevik, assertive Bolshevik world, world communism, world socialism. And Hitler saw the people, das Volk, the, uh, the people of Germany, the Aryan race as having that superiority and that they should actually be the ones to dominate in this socialist Reich that he was going to establish for a thousand years. So please don't make the mistake falling into the propaganda that fascism, socialism, Marxism, communism are opposed to each other in individuals they may be because they're rivals looking for power but in fact the fascists and the Marxists, the communists, are no more opposed to each other than the 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 Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks. they were all Marxists, all communists. They just had different ways of going about pursuing their plans and their ultimate goals. So uh, in the case of Franco, he saw that there was help needed to prevent the other generals in Spain, he was the youngest of them all, from acceding to a communist takeover, of the politicians. And so, yes, he did get some help from the fascists of Italy, possibly Germany. Uh, he did get some help from them, but that didn't make him a, a fascist. That didn't mean he agreed with them in their principles. But his immediate immediate need was to resist the communist takeover of his country. Uh, you say that Bernardo Zorge never came out and condemned Nazism as such. The fact is that Pope Pius XI, who was the author of Bernardo Zorge, that Pius XI did condemn communist, uh, socialism. Absolutely. He even said that no true Catholic can be at the same time a sincere socialist, or perhaps no sincere Catholic can be at the same time a true so can be a true socialist. So he made it very clear that socialism and Catholicism were incompatible. And that includes National Socialism, no doubt about it. Um, there were those who probably fell into the trap, yes, perhaps even some Catholic prelates because of the sweet talk of the fascists, maybe, who fell into the trap of thinking that the fascists would save them from communism. But that was an alternative between two monsters, you know, Um, and choosing, perhaps, fascism as the lesser of two evils, but still an evil, never approved. Pope Pius XII in the Vatican had to be very careful, too, because he would not condemn uh, fascism outright because of the position he was in. He found that when he did, he actually made Catholics a target for Hitler. And so there were those who pleaded with him, please do not come out and formally condemn fascism because when you do, it makes it worse, makes it worse for us. So Pius XII had to pursue officially a policy of neutrality But nonetheless, he did everything he could to resist and condemn both communism and Nazism, fascism, in Germany. So, I, I think that the question itself contains errors. And I ask you to, for example, look up the tenets and the policies of fascism. Look up the tenets and policies of Bolshevism. And see how they coincide with each other. Um, and yes, the church did, in fact, in fact condemn both ideologies. Even if she found one to be the lesser of two evils, probably because it was the more vulnerable, she did condemn both of them. In any case, um, and and perhaps one would be uh, one reason would be this. I guess if I could put it this way. Uh, Bolshevism was militantly atheistic, and fascism not necessarily so. Uh, Fascism did not adopt an atheistic position, at least not formally, whereas uh, Bolshevism, uh, communism did. And so uh, that in itself might provide that slim distinction between the two of them. But as far as ideologies and national national, uh, policies, or international policies, they're the same thing. They're just uh, diabolical conspiracies uh, against God, against the kingship of Christ. Um, now with regard to the next question. Um, it's been a while since I've messaged you. Hope all is well with you. I have a couple of questions uh, since Halloween is approaching. Is it permissible? Well, this is actually, uh, as you know, a dated question right now. Is it permissible to read books like The Exorcist or watch those type of horror movies? I know Father Jenkins once re- recommended the movie about Annalisa Mikkel. That's uh, the, um, the Exorcism of Emily Rose, I think it was the title given to the actual movie. Just curious if it is permissible to watch similar movies like The Exorcist, or books like *Begone, Satan, which was about a case of demonic possession in Iowa back in the 1920s. Well, let's take a look at that. Um, is it permissible to read books like The Exorcist or watch those type of horror movies? Um, is it permissible in the sense that is it sinful? If it's an occasion of sin, it would be. I would heartily discourage one from seeing such movies or reading such books because they give a false narrative they give a false story they they depict exorcism in a way that is completely well yes, I guess I could say completely fairy ish and um unfortunately, I think the way often the way these uh horror stories play out is they, they glorify the power of evil and magnify the power of evil, uh, terrifying people at the prospect of meeting some dyman- demonic powers and so on, um, as though the power of God was wanting or lacking here and unable to control the power of the devil. I, I consider that to be very wrong uh, and very dangerous. So I I would certainly discourage people from reading such books just for the sake of the adrenaline rush of being scared to death by these things, because they can come away with them, from them, with a very, very false idea, an exaggerated idea of the power of the devil, and actually uh, lose confidence in the power of God because of the way these things are falsely presented. Um, so I think horror movies are a manifestation of original sin, the consequences of original sin in the soul, that people find these things so fascinating. And today we find the glorification of the weird, the bizarre, the twisted, the distorted, the unnatural, the deviant. We, we glorify these things now, and I think it all comes from the same source of fascination with, well, just the horror of it all, um, of evil. Uh, evil can be very fascinating for, uh, to us, as it was under the guise of a temptation uh, to Eve long ago. So it is with us today. We need to avoid that. Uh, the author says, I know Father once recommended the movie about and Mikkel. Well, I recommended that movie again. I think it's in, uh, marketed under the title of uh, The Exorcism by Early Rose because. Uh, I think, it, well, it was, number one, uh, referring to an actual case. And although it had its deficiencies, certainly, it um, it did show the spiritual side, and it did show ultimately the power of heaven over the powers of hell. Uh, even the Blessed Mother and the fact uh, that this soul... Her actual name was Annalisa Mikkel. I think she lived in Alsace-Lorraine, if I'm not mistaken. That she did undergo possession, but her possession was a trial from God and as a victim soul, and that she was ultimately given the choice to let the possession end. Maybe she would have died then and saved her soul. Or that she would continue suffering as she was for the benefit of the church, which... Itself was suffering at that time. Remember now, the well. If you'd ever knew this, Annalisa Mikkel actually is a, a live, was a living human being, a young lady who lived uh, at the time when the changes were coming in after Vatican II. I mean, she was living in the, I guess, early 70s, and the changes were coming in after Vatican II, and the church was suffering, uh, basically being poisoned by the 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 venom of modernism. And uh, her family was a traditional Catholic family It was holding on to the traditional mass and traditional sacraments. And the understanding uh, conveyed in the movie, but also by the books written on the subject, by those who were close to the case, uh, that she was a victim soul suffering for the church and with the church at that time, uh, being poisoned by modernism, by the new order. And uh, she was given the choice to continue that suffering for the church, with the church, or to end it. And she chose to continue it, uh, generously being willing to continue that suffering for, for the good of the church. And it was the Blessed Mother who presented her that choice. So, um, again, if you, if you read the book on the subject of that possession... And uh, you see the movie, I think you see that the spiritual aspect of this was conveyed in the movie. And uh, that there was nothing, not only un-Catholic about it, but that it actually conveyed many of the salient aspects of exorcism. One could read, uh, one would do well to read the book by Father Gabriel Amort, The Exorcist of Rome, Died at an advanced age a few years ago. But he wrote a book called An Exorcist Tells His Story. And the, what, what Father Amorth tells you in that brief book about exorcism and his own experience actually coincides with the traditional Roman ritual and its 21 instructions to exorcists before, well, the beginning of chapter 11 of the ritual on exorcisms. And uh, I think, again, the story of Annalisa Mikkel in the book and to some extent in the movie actually reflects that actual instruction, that the, the, um, the exorcist, I think, the man who played the exorcist in the movie, the priest, there were actually two involved in real life, but in the movie there was just one. I think it was the actor Tom Williams, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know actors very well, but anyway, <laughs> but it was portrayed uh, fairly accurately insofar as the steps he took in the exorcism were rather accurate. He, he For example, he started out with the Exorcism, de- commanding the possessing demons to identify themselves, to give them give their names. That's one of the first things the Exorcist is instructed to do in the Roman ritual to command the demons to give their names and identify themselves because that establishes the fact that the exorcist has a power and authority over them that they have to recognize, that they can't resist. And as you recall, if you saw the movie, uh, let's see, The Exorcism of Emily Rose, you recall there were some pretty bad demons who were possessing uh, this poor soul, uh I think I think Judas was one I think uh, uh, let's see there were a number of other names that escape me right now but uh, these were rather prominent among the demons and so um, in a sense it makes sense if one sees this victim's soul is suffering for the church why these particular demons would be involved and um, the one, one thing I would very much fault the movie, The Exorcism of Emily Rose, was it showed in the movie one attempt at exorcism, and it did not succeed in driving out the demons. And it was as though, well, we failed, there's nothing more we can do. Anybody who knows anything about exorcisms knows that they do not make one attempt and then give up and walk away. They go at they keep at it, and keep at it, and keep at it. They will not give up, and the demons know when the time comes, when they will be expelled. They know that, but they will not give up because they are there to resist and to make that person suffer, as the demons themselves have said. So, in any case, um, that particular movie, I did say, that wouldn't be bad to see if you had some background in it. And we're a balanced individual and could see it from the spiritual message there. If you're just looking for horror, then it'll give you nightmares. But uh, again, I, I hope that kind of addresses the question. Now, reading the book Begone Satan, insofar as it is an accurate record of exorcisms, uh, again, it, it somewhat depends upon the individual. I don't recommend that anybody uh, watch Hollywoodized. Uh, romanticized uh, put cases of uh, or accounts of, of diabolical possession because, as I say, I think it minimizes the power of God and maximizes the power of Satan. And so it falsifies the whole idea. But even when one is reading or watching an account of a real exorcism that is portrayed in a real way, again, I think it depends on the individual, whether one has the maturity, mostly the mental and spiritual maturity, to watch it and to derive good from it, or simply to be horrified by it, frightened by it, terrified by it, and discouraged by it. If one is of a mental state that they would be injured by watching it, even if it is an an accurate account of a successful exorcism by a real Catholic exorcist, and the devil is eventually vanquished and driven out, uh, if the person watching that is going to be spiritually traumatized by it, then he shouldn't watch it, shouldn't read it. Uh, so there are those who could read the book Begone Satan uh, to their advantage, and there are others who could read it um, almost with a, a kind of a teenage fascination and be damaged by it. So uh, I don't, can recommend it to everyone. Uh, this writer also says his father familiar with Ed and Lorraine Warren, They investigated numerous haunted houses um, and even worked with uh, Father Malachi Martin and uh, another Took took, um, priest. Um, No, I do not agree that they, as laymen, should do formal exorcisms. They should not be tangling with the supernatural or preternatural power. It is, I think, foolhardy to do that. Uh, if, if you're going to be praying the prayer to St. Michael the Archangel, that's fine. That's a prayer of exorcism. As a, late, as a layman, one can do, a Catholic can do that to one good advantage. In fact, the Church traditionally leads the faithful in that prayer at the end of Mass, in the prayers after Low Mass in the Roman Rite. That the entire congregation is led in that prayer by the priest who just offered Mass the prayer to St. Michael the Archangel is a prayer of exorcism. But when we're talking about actually confronting the demons, possessing demons, no one should do that but a, an ordained exorcist, a, a truly traditionally ordained exorcist. And if he can get some ecclesiastical authority to authorize him to do that, fine. Not sure how that would be done. These days, certainly, you wouldn't look to the Nova sort who give that. Um, in any case, but no, I, I would certainly discourage any lay person from tangling with that. I think it is really almost like dabbling in the occult and inviting, inviting possession, possession oneself. I'm afraid. Uh, question: I am confused about whether it's a sin to take the vaccine in order to keep my job. I don't have many skills, and the job I have now is a union job that is hard to come by. I am the father of a large growing family. Would it be a sin on my part to take it? Again, this seems to be the question of the day, doesn't it? Uh, The Society of St. Pius X seems to have come out and pretty much said, yes, it's okay to get the vaccination, and in some cases it might even be the morally right thing to do. I don't agree with that. Um, but the question of whether it is sinful to take it when you are being forced to take it for your livelihood uh, to feed, clothe, and shelter in your family um, or whether you're being threatened with, menaced with all kinds of uh, imprisonment essentially as they're doing in in Australia right now, in Austria right now, threatening to do in Germany right now. Um, It's just Awful! what what is being done to people in the name of uh, health these days by these health czars and health tyrants who are being put in places by presidents and prime ministers and governors and so on. Um, So in in any case, um, you know, one thing I haven't heard mentioned by anyone is um, a distinction here. Whether it's a, a mortal sin to take this vaccination or a venial sin. Now, the argument that it's a sin arises from the fact that the vaccines either are derived from uh, cells of children put to death by abortion, um, or if these so-called vaccines—they are not really vaccines—the messenger RNA things are, are biological, um, basically, biological agents. They're, they're biological therapies. They're uh, gene therapy, really. Um, they mimic vaccines, but they're not vaccines. Um, you know, they, they may not be derived from fetal cells, but they use fetal cells in their testing. And so the question still arises is that, is that, intrinsically immoral? Is it a sin to take the vaccine? Well, uh, there is an argument that uh, and while I think it has some basis in c- Catholic moral theology that uh, because of the remoteness uh, from the uh, abortions that uh, taking these, I, I say vaccines in quotation marks, uh, taking these things would not be sinful. Um, my my own perspective on that, for what it is worth, is this, that uh, a great evil is perpetrated by uh, the abortion of these children, and then uh, ghoulishly capitalizing on the abortion by taking their own fetal cells and developing cell lines from them for uh, developing vaccines, testing vaccines, and so on. I think that it is an abomination to do that. And I'm sure you'll agree with me that it certainly is an abomination to do that. Now, one might argue that the complicity, there is no real complicity in the abortion uh, by, after all this time, and all these generations of those cells, taking a vaccine developed from them. uh, Because, actually, taking the vaccine or not has no effect, has no consequence, really, on whether those children were aborted or other children will be aborted. But I I would question that. It seems to me that if everyone who believed that abortion was evil put their foot down and said, we absolutely adamantly refuse to be a party to this, we will not accept any therapies of any kind, any medications, any vaccines, whatever you want to call them, that are derived from the cells of aborted babies, we absolutely condemn this and we will have nothing to do with it. I can't help but think that if they lost their market, that they would also lose the incentive to abort babies, take their cells and develop vaccines from them. Uh, So it does seem to me that if everyone united together against this, uh, that it would have a very practical effect for the present and for the future saying, no, we condemn this practice, we will not accept it. So, I think there is some responsibility for that, but let's face it. Uh, Unless uh, the vast majority of people involved, in sufficient numbers, that is, rejected this, again, their their resistance to it would accomplish nothing in that regard. The juggernaut of abortion and uh, the development of these vaccines in this way would continue, It would take quite a united effort to have any real serious effect on that. So what is the individual's responsibility? Could we make a distinction between whether it's a mortal sin to receive it or a venial sin? Uh, I think there's an argument that could be made for that. But sinful it is, you know, and even committing a venial sin willingly would be unacceptable even to save the entire world, to offend God even by venial sin. So it's still a serious matter, nonetheless, to... Uh, willfully go ahead and just commit a venial sin if if you could reduce it to that um, because of the pressure and because of the remoteness of the cooperation, because that individual's resistance or rejection would not in any way undo the abortions and doesn't constitute a uh, an endorsement or an acceptance of the abortions. One could reduce the responsibility of the individual. Still, I would say that um, we have a moral obligation to resist it. I would just put it that way. We have a moral obligation to resist this, absolutely. And even to suffer and risk suffering great loss for the sake of resisting this. Because this issue is so massive uh, these so-called vaccines are toxins, they're poisons. We're poisoning the, the system here. And so many uh, virologists and immunologists and others who are involved in, uh, in that aspect of medicine have come out and actually told us and explained to us what these so-called vaccines do. And we see the haste with which they have been produced. We see the enormous profits that have been raked in, billions and billions of dollars by these pharmaceutical companies. And we also see the population control aspect that Bill Gates has made no secret of. He's been very open about it, that he ties vaccine with reducing the population, with culling the herd, as it were. And then we see the result of the vaccines. In the VAERS, B-A-E-R-S, the vaccine adverse event uh, reporting system of the United States government the CDC and the thousands and thousands and thousands of adverse cases actually what was it how many 25 some thousand neurological uh, issues serious neurological issues alone reported to the CDC within the first few months after the release of these so-called vaccines. Uh, There's a lot of information that is hidden, but there's a lot of information that is out there that enable us to see that these things are very bad. And uh, not only that, but incrementally, they're, they're going after the younger, younger population, and they want to, well, you know now, I mean, to inject youngsters even as young as five years old. And for those who are willing, even infants... This is where they're going with this. So where are we going to resist it? At what point are we going to say no if we believe it is morally wrong to accept these things? If it is morally wrong, it's morally wrong on two counts, at least, at least two counts. One I've already mentioned, the use of the fetal cells from abortions, and the other is the commandment that says, thou shalt not kill, the fifth commandment, that forbids you to do anything harmful to yourself or to somebody else. That is a commandment too, and that is in, in play here. That is a factor in taking these vaccines. So I, I say to the gentleman who wrote this, uh, I have a good job with a union, and I don't have many alternatives. I have a father with a large family. I say, okay, as a father of a large family, you have to think about your health, and you have to realize what these vaccines actually do to you. And should you be putting yourself at risk by taking these vaccines? You may say, okay, I'm being threatened with the loss of my job over this. But what kind of a threat is uh, coming at you, uh, your very physical health or life because of of taking the vaccines? Uh, They're doing serious damage here. And even those who suffer uh, apparently no ill effects from taking the vaccines, it's priming them for the future to suffer the consequences. Uh, this is what we're being told by people who know, they're experts in the field. They're warning us uh, that the worst is yes to come for the consequences of the vaccines. So I would just tell you, please hold on. Um, as I mentioned, I've been writing letters for those who have sincere religious beliefs against these vaccines to not... Uh, substitute their own statement because each one has to testify for himself or herself regarding that person's own sincerely held religious belief i can't do that for them all i can do is write a letter of support saying why their sincerely held religious beliefs would forbid them from taking the vaccine and i've been issuing those part of the problem has been in the past That I'm getting requests from people whom I don't know personally, so I can't personally endorse the fact that they have these sincerely held religious beliefs. They have to make that statement themselves. But I have produced a letter that can go to those um, whom I don't know and for whom I cannot testify myself from my own observation that they have that sincerely held religious belief, but I can still give them a letter through the What Catholics Believe website, uh, that explains why the Catholic faith does condemn these vaccines. And they can submit that letter with their own statement. So, I would just uh, recommend to our writer here that he uh, give us some information and we'd be glad to provide what we can for him, honestly to support him in in resisting taking these vaccines. Remember, if he's taking the vaccine himself, it affects his whole family. It's like the whole family is getting vaccinated uh, through their father. Um, Remember, those who take the vaccine, even the CDC, even even, uh, Anthony Fauci himself has come out and acknowledged that if you get the vaccines, you can still contract the disease, you can still be infected, and you can still transmit the disease to others. And there are those who say the vaccine makes you actually a super spreader where the viral concentration in you or the viral count in you actually is greater, at least is great, but can be greater than even in those who are non-vaccinated. So yes, it will affect the people you live under your roof with, uh, according to that understanding. So um, So uh, please uh, be very strong, be very careful about that. And uh, maybe we should make this the last question here. I'm sorry if I'm going on uh, some uh, length here. Uh, Well, I'll tell you what. Why don't I I table the rest of these for a time when Mr. Negley can rejoin us. Uh, I would like to close, though, by pointing out the, again, the precarious situation we are in right now in dealing with the so-called, well, we know as the plandemic, indeed. And uh, it seems to me that we are actually uh, in very biblical times, and by that I mean that there are times that were forecast by the Bible. You know, there was a time when mankind, feeling very, very sure of itself, uh, tried to build a tower. Some say it was a ziggurat, probably was a ziggurat. They, they thought they could build this tower and reach heaven so that they could almost take heaven almost by conquest, okay? This is how arrogant they were. Uh, all of the people, this was so early on in human history, they were all united by a common language. And so you know that this Tower of Babel was never actually completed because God confused their speech. They couldn't work together. They couldn't complete the project. They they dispersed over the earth because of the confusion of their language. Well, it seems to me we're in a time now when uh, it's almost as though uh, the elite, as they're called, the billionaires club, think that they can build this Tower of Babel. They can build this Tower of Babel digitally. Now they can... Get overcome this, this uh, uh, speech impediment of mankind, as it were, or this confusion of the speech in which mankind could not communicate, they're going to overcome that now by their cell phones. They're going to overcome that now by their internet. They're now going to bring mankind together now so we can, we can now construct this Tower of Babel that God had vetoed long ago. Now we're going to construct it and we're going to storm heaven and we're going to take it for ourselves. So... And in the process of doing so, they say that they're going to give us all a digital identity. And even Klaus Schwab, the uh, spokesperson for the World Economic Forum, and the great advocate of the, 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 what they call the Great Reset, you know, the communist, communists take over the world, you will own nothing, but you will be happy. By decree, you will be happy. Uh, that's an order from uh, Klaus Schwab and his, and his economic forum, uh, they want to integrate, as they say, your physical identity and your biological identity and your, your digital identity. He left out the diabolical identity. You might as well have included that too. But he, he said, we're not only going to have a physical identity and a biological identity, but they want to give you a digital identity they want to give you a digital identity and without that digital identity you don't fit you don't fit in the world you have no right to be in the world and the vaccine passport is no doubt a big part of that digital identity that you have to have you know uh, some time ago some somebody coined the phrase uh the the expression homo digitalis curious curious isn't it now, we're known as homo sapiens, okay, wise man, okay, because we've come to the age of reason, they say, and we're thoughtful, we've been enlightened, this is the, the, the highest state of human evolution, they say, is the homo sapiens, but now they say, we're going to go on to the next stage of human evolution, and we're going to produce the homo digitalis, which they refer to as the digital man or the digitalized man. Where we're all going to have a digitalized, a digital identity. This is what they tend, they say they're going to create. They're going to meld our minds with the digital world and going to essentially um, take our identities and make them digital. It's kind of interesting, I think, that digitalis, though, the they, digitalis of the homo digitalis, Digitalis is a, is a poison. Digitalis, as you know, digitalis is a poison. I think uh, David Yallop even said that uh, Pope uh, John Paul I uh, was assassinated with the use of digitalis in the papal apartments. But digitalis has use as a poison. And to refer to homo digitalis, well, maybe we're talking about poisoned man. And considering their vaccines, I think that applies perfectly. You were talking about poisoned man, the homo digitalis, sir. And, um, you know, I realized that I could be accused of spreading disinformation. And um, even a vaccine or what they call COVID conspiracies, that I could be accused of being a COVID conspirator here. In fact, Francis Collins... um, who was the head of the, this, the NIH, the, yes, the NIH, I guess it was, Francis Collins, who now has tendered his resignation because it has come to light that under his watch, yes, uh, gain-of-function uh, research was being done in Wuhan, China, financed by the United States government, under himself, Collins and Fauci, uh, now, he has said that those who spread vaccine disinformation and engage in kind of this COVID conspiracy, talking as though the, the virus and the vaccines are part of a conspiracy against the human race. He says people who talk that way should be subject to prosecution, should be uh, disciplined, should be uh, charged even criminally, should have to be drawn up by the DOJ, the, the Department of Justice. Uh, they, they have to be stopped, they have to be punished for this kind of thinking and this kind of talk. Well, as a matter of fact, I would be all in favor of that. I would be in favor that if, if, if one who actually uh, saw the, the, uh, the virus itself and the vaccines as being part of a great conspiracy and who were spreading misinformation about it, if they were to be charged... Um, I would be all in favor if the first person charged was Francis Collins, and the second person charged would be Anthony Fauci, because I consider them to be the ones who are spreading the most dis- disinformation about both the vaccine and, and the, uh, the, the virus itself. I think they're the ones who are behind so much of this misinformation and deception. So, uh, to that extent, I would have to agree. I think there, there should be some sort of a, a reckoning for uh, misinformation, disinformation uh, about these, these matters. In any case, um, uh, perhaps what we saw happening out in California not long ago, with a, uh, a mother, uh, with her door her being battered down by the FBI, agents of the FBI, and herself handcuffed before her children because she was not politically correct, because she'd crossed some members of the local school board, and she was targeted by the FBI for that. Well, if they want to turn the FBI into the Federal Bureau of Intimidation, they're doing a good job of it. We see exactly that kind of thing happening with law enforcement around the world, in Australia and in Austria and so many other places, where people who... Resist the vaccine, resist the lockdowns, and all the other restrictions are being criminalized. And in Australia now, actually those who are, uh, have a positive COVID test and those who have been in contact with them, social contact with them, are being gathered by, by actual uh, armed forces in Australia and forcibly taken by bus to camps, internment camps. It's come to that. It might well come to that soon in Austria, too. It could even come to that here in the United States of America, if we allow it to, if we allow it to. So, my dear faithful, we have uh, certainly days of reckoning here facing us, but we must remember that God has forewarned us about this. Our Blessed Mother told us at Fatima that uh, the errors of Marx, the errors of Russia would spread throughout the world. We're watching it happening before our very eyes. Why? Well, because we did not listen to what she told us would be necessary to prevent it. Uh, Stop offending God by sin. Make reparation for the sins committed against God. uh, Have devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus and the Immaculate Heart of Mary and be consecrated to her Immaculate Heart. And uh, at that time, she wanted Russia consecrated to her Immaculate Heart. She wants all of us consecrated to her Immaculate Heart. We have to pray and do penance, we have to pray the Rosary in particular. We have to hold fast to our traditional Catholic faith. This is what is going to draw the protection of heaven upon us, our families, and our country. So I beg you to please return to, or find for the first time if necessary, if you have never known it, the true traditional Catholic faith and its practice, the true traditional Catholic religion in the traditional mass, traditional sacraments. Pray the rosary, be faithful to God, make reparation to God for the sins committed against him. And you, yes, you have the power to turn this around. Our lady even referred uh, to the fact that she was was holding back the avenging hand of, of God, of our Lord raised against a sinful world. And for the sake of his own mother, and her devotion and her prayers and her love for us, God was staying his hand. But she said it was becoming more difficult to do so. Well, you and I can lend a hand to her hand by our fidelity, our hope, and our love for God here and now. So, uh, with that, I bid you good night. God bless you, and I wish you a blessed Thanksgiving. One question that comes up finally is. Is there a dispensation from the abstinence against, well, eating meat on the Friday after Thanksgiving? And all I can say is that in some dioceses here in the United States of America, before Vatican II, it was customary to grant a dispensation for the Friday after Thanksgiving to allow the eating of meat on that Friday. Uh, customary, um, you might say, because of the matter of refrigeration and leftovers and them being spoiled and going to ruin, that the church allowed at a time when refrigeration was not that common or was still rather primitive, um, that Catholics could eat meat on that Friday. My own take on that would be that was... True, in certain dioceses, for this particular reason, that reason, I think, doesn't exist now. I think we can preserve the food to be eaten later. I don't think we have to worry about it going bad or spoiling. The second thing I would say is we have a desperate need right now for penance and reparation to God. Why should we be looking for any way to get around an opportunity to offer God some reparation even in this very small way that after a thanksgiving in which many people glut themselves we are asked to give up this small thing of not eating meat on this Friday practicing abstinence in honor of our Lord's crucifixion and sacrificial death for us on Friday. Why don't we just all embrace that and and offer that to our Lord if you would be dispensed from it ordinarily all the more reason why it would be acceptable to our Lord that you could offer it as a sacrifice, a willing and loving sacrifice to him. A small thing, and yet something very significant, nonetheless. So I encourage uh, people to realize that, yes, there have been dispensations given in the past for eating meat on that Friday following Thanksgiving, but I heartily recommend that we simply Follow the abstinence of that Friday in honor of the crucifixion and in answer to Our Lady's call at Fatima for prayer and penance. May God bless you all. Have a blessed Thanksgiving.